0: If you imagine a lobster talking, it probably has a British accent. Draw an animated lobster and I bet you'll include a top hat, a monocle and an opera cape," wrote Food and Restaurant reviewer Greg Elwell. And here I can already deliver a piece of knowledge you can show off at a dinner party. Up into the 1800s, lobster was considered trash food in the US, fit only to feed prisoners, the poor and cats surprising huh that is in a stark contrast to nowadays lobster is a fancy and even posh food second maybe only to caviar the seafood analog to steak is something fit to be served at the president's dinner party because lobster is delicious it is also costly nowadays given its rich meat and subtle taste In preparation for this episode, I decided to go with a friend to a seafood restaurant in the south of Portugal, on the coast of Faro. As I scanned the prices, the lobster popped out as the most expensive item on the list at 115 euros per kilo. You could get approximately 10 kilos of Beyond Meat burgers for one kilo of lobster. But there was no lobster to try because they were out of it due to popular demand. How did lobster rise from the dirty bottom of the food preference list to float at the very top amongst the high society? Join me in this episode to discover how lobsters were entangled in protests and revolts, snuck into passengers' food on train rides, and were even caught up in World War II. You're listening to Season 5 of Red to Green History for the Future of Food. Stick around till the end to see how this story might relate to our present and the future of food. Let's jump right in. You're listening to Red to Green, the audiobook style podcast on food tech and sustainability, moving the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. The American lobster is native to the Atlantic coast of North America, mainly from Labrador to New Jersey. In the early days of the first settlers and way up into the middle of the 19th century, lobsters were so plentiful in the area that people could wade into the water and catch what they needed for dinner with their bare hands. Imagine that, that must feel pretty amazing. Just grab a fresh lobster with your bare hands. While early colonists depended on the crustaceans for much of their food, the sheer abundance of the animal didn't help its popularity. Quite to the contrary. When lobsters washed up onto the shore after storms, they were considered smelly trash and used as fertilizer in the fields. They were the cheapest source of protein available in the area and therefore regarded as undesirable peasant food. Too bland to be edible for discerning tastes. As 19th century American Navy captain and politician John G. Rowan stated, lobster shells about a house are looked upon as a sign of poverty and degradation. Lobsters were also common food in prisons, much to the displeasure of inmates, and they were the food of servants. The term servants can likely be considered a euphemism here. They gave seven years of service to their sponsors in exchange for coming to America. A lot of term oil was accepted, but too much lobster in their diet led them to revolt. The word lobster comes from the Old English loppe, which means spider, and from the Latin locusta, meaning marine shellfish, but also locust, a giant, mainly tropical grasshopper. The stalk eyes, antennae and gills on their legs did not help their case either. They are, in fact, distantly related to insects. And if we put our cultural perceptions of lobsters to the side for a moment and consider them just for what they are, they do look like spiders, shellfish and grasshoppers. We eat lobsters, but we do not eat grasshoppers in the West. So how did lobsters claim their way up the social ladder? It was a combination of eventual scarcity, clever marketing and technical progress, which made the once shunt cockroach of the ocean suddenly very desirable. Traditionally, lobster was like any other meat, cooked after it was already dead. But when the lobster dies, its stomach releases enzymes into the rest of its body and increases the deterioration, causing it to spoil and smell quickly. It reminds me a bit of a self-destructing message or a self-implosion button. So after being slaughtered, lobster meat had to be preserved one way or the other. In the middle of the 19th century, lobster canning factories began to spring up in New England, and lobster meat became a source of protein in the broader area due to its low cost. The canneries were so efficient that the size of the processed lobsters was ever declining. In 1860, Maine-based politician James P. Baxter recalled that four to five-pound lobsters were considered minor, and the two-pound lobsters were being discarded as not worth the effort to pick the meat for canning. The canneries were stuffing meat from half-pound lobsters into the tin cans for processing only 20 years later, but lobsters were still abundant, even if smaller and when the railways started to spread through America, transportation managers realized something interesting. If no one knew what lobster was, trains could serve it to passengers as if it were a rare exotic item, even though it was very cheap for those running the railroad. Unaware of the negative stigma attached to the animals, Passengers were intrigued by the delicious meal. They began to request it at the destinations, making lobster one of the more popular foods in America. And yes, boiling lobsters alive was part of that success story. Chefs found that the meat tasted and looked better this way. The reason lobsters turn red when boiled is because the cooking process suppresses every other pigment than red in the chitin shell. Some may argue that lobsters have a less developed brain and nervous system than mammals, but they can still feel pain and discomfort. A more responsible way to cook lobster is to first chill it, for example in cold air, for at least 20 minutes so the lobster is stunned, and then kill it mechanically in a short process. So in case you do ever care to eat lobster, you may want to inquire on how it was prepared. By the 1850s and 60s, restaurants started serving lobsters in their salad section, alongside bread and butter pickles and cottage cheese. And something interesting had happened. Americans had started to like lobster, demanding more of it. And when anglers noticed fewer lobsters and smaller ones, this drove the price of the crustaceans up. They were no longer considered trash food for the poor. However, when most foods were rationed during World War II, lobster was an exception, and so people of all classes began to eat it enthusiastically. By the 1950s, lobster was firmly established as a delicacy. As the supplies kept shrinking and the prices kept going up, we have arrived at our current state. It is commonly known that lobster meat is delicious, but its scarcity makes it a delicacy and luxury. Hey, have you been enjoying this episode so far? If you would think of just one person that may be interested in this topic, who comes to mind? You can click on the share button and send them a direct link. If you do this now, it maybe just takes 30 seconds. It's a small gesture, but helps us a lot. So we can keep producing future seasons that you can enjoy for free. Now back to the episode. So let's look at the lessons for the future of food. What is fascinating about this story is how strong our association with lobster as a delicacy is and how much they do look like insects. Working on the script for this episode has been eye-opening. Lobsters look like sea insects, totally. Shrimp also looks pretty gross if you think of it. Sometimes a certain degree of disassociation from the food source is necessary to enjoy it. When people eat, they often don't profoundly want to think about what they eat and how it has been produced. That can be an issue or an advantage or something to leverage to change consumer choices for the better. Animal agriculture is not winning customers by showing its behind-the-scenes production process. Processing is not the main factor that drives the buying decision. Neither is the thought of this being real flesh from a living being. Consumers interact with a more detached version, a mental association with a product that is more focused on immediate taste, its association with luxury, and believed benefits. In Season 3 on promoting alternative proteins, Jacobobo shared a good perspective. Yes, make your insect bar, but don't put insects in big letters on the front of the bar. People care about the benefits and its image, not the core ingredient. Sometimes it's good to help people to detach from what they're eating. Another theme that pops up repeatedly in these stories is that cheaper is not necessarily better. High price and scarcity drive prestige and therefore demand. Isn't it interesting that lobsters were seen as undesirable while they were abundant? Just because something is delicious, it doesn't necessarily make it popular. Telling people who haven't heard about lobsters that it is an exotic treat opened up taste buds and fueled consumer acceptance. Even when we eat alone, our food choice is influenced by social factors because attitudes and habits develop through social interactions. When reading up on cellular agriculture, I often notice producers rely on good taste and affordability for mass adoption. Pretty much, if we get it to taste like meat and it is cheap enough, people will want to buy it. And yes, a certain part of the population will want to buy it, but there's also the whole part of perception and how it is seen. And those aspects are crucial as well. So let's imagine we step out of our old protein bubble and investigate most people's mental image of conventional steak crafted by decades of advertisements and carnivore culture. Juicy, delicious, nutritious, real meat, green fields and alternatives compete with conventional options not just based on taste or facts, but based on perception. And if the competing perception is cold blue lab, white coats, Petri dish, synthetic, high tech, is that really as appealing? Overall, I think the lobster story is a hopeful story for those working in the insect and old protein space. Lead with taste, build up the brand, and let people positively disassociate from what they are eating, because we are all doing this anyway, just in all the wrong places. Thank you for listening. As always, I love to connect with listeners. So just drop me a line on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt. Marina, like the ocean, like the marine, and Schmidt, S-C-H, M-I-D-T. You can also find me by just typing in red to green on LinkedIn and finding me associated with it. As always, there are more people behind each episode. So thanks to Katarina Tilts for doing ground research, Lara Toyman, the editor, as well as Celeste Gupta, the audio editor. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.